Living in South Africa, you simultaneously experience some of the most luxurious and most poverty-stricken conditions on earth. And on Robben Island, you learned about the power to find peace and to forgive, and that changed how you see the world. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. We went to an elephant sanctuary, and they have elephants who are there rehabilitating. Either they were circus elephants in Europe or America or Asia or somewhere, and they're um, bringing them back into their natural environment. Or two, they're animals who maybe uh, disease or family members uh, died, and they would not survive alone in the wild. We were able to walk with them, and you uh, you curl your hand backwards, um, and the elephant latches its trunk onto your hand very softly. And it reminds me of if you've ever had a baby hold your your finger, they'll wrap their entire hand around your finger. It was like that. And, and I was walking, guiding this, I don't know, probably five-ton elephant, weigh about you know 10,000 pounds behind me. And I'm walking through knee-high brush, and I'm talking to the guide who, I think he was Congolese. And, and I'm walking with this 10,000 pound elephant behind me, just walking through the woods or not the woods, but the brush. I'm like, man, oh man, there are not a lot of people who would A, believe this or B, you know, it's out of a movie. You, you can't make this stuff up. This week, seeing the world from Nelson Mandela's jail cell, experiencing uncalled for generosity in a rainy township and feeling okay with Feeling Small. Join us on a journey from California to Cape Town to find humanity within extremes. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is David Rader. I'm originally from Southern California, Laguna Beach specifically. And I attended uh, Stellenbosch University for the summer program uh, in 2011, and that was through a Gilman scholarship. I actually enlisted in the army out of high school, uh, spent four years in the army. I was fortunate enough to be stationed in Germany for a year. It was kind of always in the back of my mind to study abroad or get the chance to go abroad again. So with that, after I got out of the army, I went to the university of Arizona for undergraduate and they have a very big study abroad push. So I applied, you know, the guidance of our study abroad coordinator for the Gilman scholarship. She said, you know, you're a veteran, you want to see the world. And I actually had a natural kind of affinity for South African politics. I'm a political science undergrad major, if that means anything. So apartheid fascinated me. I, I didn't get it, but I knew what it was. And I and I never felt fully connected to it, to the study of it, nor, nor the experience of the South Africans. So I applied to the Gilman scholarship and, and got it. So I was fortunate enough to go to South Africa for about nine weeks Uh, for the summer program. One of the most memorable experiences there was going to Robben Island and standing in front of the cell where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. 
In Robben Island, it's beautiful because the backdrop of it is uh, Cape Town and Table Mountain, and it, it's you know beautiful ocean and the water's clear, but it's cold and it's a hard, barren island. And you think, you know, so he was imprisoned for uh, roughly 27 years, and and he split time between multiple places. But but at Robben Island, I mean, even if you're there for a day as an inmate, it would be a very tough life. Brutal. I mean, horrible manual labor all day in the sun, and they—I mean—horrible yeah, physical ailments from it. Yeah, it's—it's it's one of those lasting things too to have to. So you do that, then you go back to a very small cell where he slept on the floor of hard cement with a little mat that looks like a potato sack, and, and the wind whips through there, and it's cold, and there's sideways rain. It, it would be very easy to, uh, yeah, to walk out of there an unhappy and angry, spiteful person. And they said that on some days you could hear, um, if the wind was the right way, you could hear uh, noise coming in from Cape Town or from surrounding areas. And so you'd you'd be sitting there, you'd have you'd hear people having fun, and, and boats would sail by, and you'd you know you'd be breaking big rocks into little rocks with a pickaxe, and you look up, and there's a yacht with a bunch of people drinking wine, <laughs> shooting by you. So yeah, it would just it would hammer it home more and more about the desolate situation you were in relative to what was, I mean, an arm's length away from you. you hard and jaded and I, I would be at least and so knowing that he was able to be in that circumstance you know not treated fairly and not well most of his life as well as many of his countrymen and forgive and look and say you know the way to go forward with this is not with spite and malice and hatred it's it's with forgiveness and for reconciliation for my people and for all of us to come together and move forward from that and so from from a leadership standpoint as an individual it taught me a lot about you know, the actual challenges I face in my life relative to his, uh, not that bad. Uh, life's been pretty good to me. You know, you learn about, a lot about yourself and leadership in the army, but being in Robben Island and seeing a person being able to forgive years of oppressive treatment and, you know, step forward from that, you know, with the thought of, of something bigger than himself being what's best for my country and the people around me and how can I make the world a, a better, safer, freer, more prosperous place under those circumstances has, has had a lasting impact on me and the way I view my problems, my colleagues, the way I'm empathetic towards issues or sympathetic. I had a friend come visit me while I lived in South Africa. We were driving from Stellenbosch, and there's a huge township right next to the airport in Cape Town. But as we drove by, there was a child uh, going to the bathroom on the side of the road, just pulled down his pants and was going there because that's what they did. There was a dead horse. Um, man, it was about 400 feet past that. And there's there's kind of stagnant. There's a little bit of running water, but it's mostly stagnant, swampy kind of water. And this this kid's going to the bathroom there. There's a dead horse 400 feet later. And so I say, it's not all like this. Let's just keep going. You drive another three miles and you hit the top of Camps Bay. And Camps Bay, 
for everyone is like the Beverly Hills of, of South Africa, but it's on the, this water, uh, on this uh, beautiful oceanfront beach property. And, and we're driving and two Ferraris were kind of racing past each other playfully. I mean, it was a four lane road, so they had room, but they were, you could tell it was two guys out joyriding. And you think I just, three miles ago, I saw a dead horse on the side of the street. A child was going to the bathroom next to it. And then three miles later, I'm watching two Ferraris shoot around as they were going out, you know, drinking for the day. I thought, man, okay, this is the, the there could not be a moment that more vividly captured, you know, haves and have nots or abject wealth and abject poverty within 10 miles. So there's still a lot of tension. And, and so being there and studying apartheid, and, and it's funny because from an academic standpoint, you say, well, apartheid ended in 1994, roughly when Mandela was elected president. And, you know, we've moved forward and things are good. And, and that's not the case. A lot of the things I saw were how they were able to reconcile and, and really go forth the government. But it's not like that in practice there. You know, you walk in as an American and say, I've, I've learned about you, you know, and I see how it is here. And they'd say, you you have no idea. You have to be there and experience it and you have to meet the people and, and see the problems they're facing or the challenges they're facing to really understand how far they've come, but how far they have left to go. And I mean, and then you reflect upon that in America and we say, oh, everything's great. It's the most prosperous country ever. And that's true for some people, but some people here, life, life's tough too. And, and it's not always as, um, as buttoned up as we like to make it on 4th of July when we're all waving the flag and happy and celebrating. While there, we went on a tour through Kayamundi Township. And so it's right on the hill next to Stellenbosch. And so Stellenbosch is an absolutely beautiful part of the world. So they identify as white, black, and colored. Colored there is an accepted uh, social classification. And so uh, the, during apartheid, the whites were treated the best. Colors were then treated second best. And then black, as we think of Africans, were treated the worst. And so a lot of them ended up congregating in Kayamundi Township, which is right next to Stellenbosch. And so you have these beautiful uh, Dutch colonial houses with wineries and these beautiful mountains. And, and, you know, right across the road is, you know, I'm making up numbers here, but 2,000 people living in, in rusted tin huts on mud floors. So we went on a tour of Kai Mundi, and I remember thinking, you know, I am, I'm a six foot four white guy. I am everything that somebody here could hate about that other side of the road. And they were the warmest friendliest, funniest, sweetest people, and they have nothing. So I was there in uh, June and July, which as you says, they're winter. And so it was kind of rainy one day and this guy walked by and, and I was getting rained on. Um, I don't have a lot of hair anyway, but this guy was like, do you want my hat? You know, I mean, the guy might be makes $4 in a day and he is offering me his hat and I'm, you know, a student touring his country on a scholarship there. And, and it was just a lasting memory too of, of how sweet and kind and considerate the people are despite constantly, again, the whole Robben Island thing, being you know physically faced feet away from you with the haves versus the have-nots and a constant reminder. And he was willing to give me something that he had, and I guarantee he didn't have a lot. It 
it was fascinating talking to people there because they too, the same way I had stereotypes in my head of Africans and then more specifically South Africans, they do of Americans. And especially so being from Southern California, I mean, they would joke and they'd be like, oh, you, you know, Pamela Anderson, you're from California. You know, my dad was a lawyer. My mom was a special ed teacher. We, we did not interact with celebrities at all. And they would look at me, not disappointed, but kind of bewildered. Like, mm, no, no, you, you do. You have to know Tom Cruise. I thought the same thing with South Africans. You know, you say, well, you, you have to you know, go on safari, you have to have school canceled because a lion walked through, which, you know, I'm joking, but they, you know, they look at you too and say, you have all these stereotypes of me. You don't know anything about me. You realize quickly that you're an ambassador to the United States and, and that's when you're in class or when you're, you know, at a restaurant or when you're grabbing a taxi at all times, you're a representative of the United States. And at all times you have to be cognizant of that, of how people are going to perceive you and which stereotypes you can challenge and, and beat for better, or also which stereotypes you're going to play into exactly. And are you a loud, boisterous American or are you a very, you know, observant, polite uh, participant of, of a society? That integration into society, even though temporary, is very important to be aware of at all times. Well, there's four South Africans to me. So there's the bush, there's the proper, what you think of for safari, and that's Kruger National Park. And it's just these expanses of wild animals. And it, and it sounds ridiculous because, I mean, it's like the Lion King. I mean, you, you, if, you were, if you could fly over in a drone, you would see zebra and hemsbach and lion and jaguar and elephant, and it's real. And it's something you feel like you've only seen in a movie. So then there's Durban, which is this large industrial port town, which has like, I think almost a million Indians. Uh, this And it's a very unique, different diaspora of, of Indians that they, um, they put uh, curry powder on pineapple. And so you have this weird convergence of the Portuguese influence of merchants and sailors with Indians. Uh, then you get to the Northern Cape and it's rural and raw and it's hard it's it's rocky not a lot grows and then there's cape town western cape and western cape is like san diego weather surrounded by napa with some stanford kind of buildings with the rocky mountains right behind it and and it's the most aesthetically pleasing place i've ever seen in my life and and i I, it's like um, Lord of the Rings, which was filmed in New Zealand, but the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa are, are very similar. And it's the most just, you know, cragged rocks leading down to the most pristine beaches and these gorgeous hillsides covered with vineyards and, and these white Dutch colonial buildings all against the backdrop of this raw and unfiltered and primal South Africa and an African nation of just friendly, sweet people who are there to eat food, drink wine, marry, love, dance, raise families, be happy and left alone. And conversely, it's against the backdrop of crime and uh, abject poverty and oppression and economic underperformance. And it's a fascinating place that just kind of marries together a lot of senses and feelings that you have throughout your life, as well as a lot of visuals and experiences that you can bundle all into one place. It's a very complicated and very special place. Yeah. 
at the southernmost tip of South Africa. 50 feet to your left is the Indian Ocean and 50 feet to your right is the Atlantic. And you can put your feet in the Indian and it's warm and you walk over the Atlantic and it's ice cold. And it's funny, it has to do with the way the, the ocean uh, currents push the water because the Atlantic water basically comes from Antarctica and circles up and the Indian Ocean is coming down from the Gulf, Somalia and Oman and Yemen, and it's warm. And, and, and the water churns and it's beautiful and, it, and it's this blue green. It's really special. But I just remember being like these two massive oceans are converging right in front of me. And one of them is, is like bathtub warm and the others, you know, icebox cold. And it's, uh, that was a very lasting moment about how small we are in the world as humans, as well as even just the land masses. Cause Africa is gigantic. I, I flew from San Francisco to Dubai, which I think was about 12 hours. And then I flew from Dubai to Cape town and it was like nine hours. I thought, geez, that's three hours past the length of the entire United States from a width standpoint. You know, if you fly from New York to LA, um, I thought, holy cow, this is a big, big chunk of rock. Um, and then he realized, of course, ocean still covered two thirds of the planet. So you realize quickly how, how small you are. And there's something special about the African sky. We call Montana big sky country. And uh, South Africa is the same way. The sky seems to go on forever. And it's bluer. And then it's it's blacker than than what we see in North America. And, and they explained it was because of the atmosphere and the way the earth is and all that. But it, yeah, it's a very primitive kind of place. It's very untouched by man and it's very welcoming. And in a lot of ways, it brings you back to center on how you feel about it being as a human. Twenty two thirty three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, David Rader told us about his time in South Africa as a Gilman scholar. For more about the Gilman and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and you can do so wherever you find your podcast. And while you're doing so, why not leave us a review? What the heck? We'd also love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. And finally, photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage. That's at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to David for sharing his insights and his love of South Africa. I did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was my favorite regret, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and that horse Ithaca and farcical thematic, both by Blue Dot Sessions. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.